My name is Shannon Beer. I am a nutrition coach and educator interested in the consilience of knowledge across disciplines, including science, psychology, philosophy, art and literature. The goal of this podcast is to bridge those disciplines and explore different perspectives in order to gain a greater understanding of myself, others and the world around us. Enjoy the show. Today I am joined by David Brown, who is a PhD student whose research interests involve investigating the role of body image in various contexts, focusing specifically on the impact of body image concerns on sport and exercise participation, psychophysiology and health. Now he's done some research examining the psychobiological responses to and recovery from social evaluative body image threats in university men who were non-athletes and and also varsity athletes from non-aesthetic sports. And I thought it would be great to have a conversation with David today, focusing, I think, a little bit more on body image in men and the muscular ideal, and then the implications or the relationship between physical activity and body image, because I think David's got a really unique sort of insight into that with the research that he's done. So firstly, thank you for joining me. And I thought it would be good just to discussing how you went you know into this direction how did you decide that this is something that you wanted to pursue sure uh thanks for having me um in terms of my general interests um i was always interested and curious in, in research within various contexts and i have a very eclectic background in research look um, stemming from like neuropsychology to social cognitive development um, uh, muscle physiology and bone health um, and exercise physiology and then I sort of fell into this area of body image uh, though it has always been of personal importance and um, personal significance for me um, so back uh, during my undergrad I volunteered quite a bit and I was always I was in a psychology program but I was always interested in how um we the reasons why individuals engage in physical activity and sport and i was always curious about body image but within the department there wasn't any uh, researchers who were really investigating that um there were however some within the kinesiology uh, department so in my masters i made a bit of a, a switch and i started investigating um uh, body image and how it impacts uh, our psychology and um, in my master's thesis work, I really investigated how it has a potential to impact our physiological responses and how over time this can cause detrimental, potentially detrimental health impacts. So I was always personally interested being a guy, um, being involved in sports. Growing up, you hear a lot of body image talk within the sports context and as a result of the muscle definition that you end up gaining from being a high level athlete, you end up getting a lot of compliments. And then when you leave sports, uh, all of a sudden these compliments are no longer there and your body starts changing in a way that is not ideal for you. And you have to sort of change how you're thinking about your body. And, uh, and that caused a lot of issues for me. So I was always very interested from that personal perspective. And then my personal experiences tied in with my love of research uh, in my master's and it's hopefully going to flourish into a very promising career in the future investigating body image within various contexts. It's really interesting that you mentioned how receiving compliments on one's appearance can influence how one sees themselves and the value that they have or where their value is placed. Because I also did an interview with Fionn Davies, who's an elite level BJJ competitor in jiu-jitsu. And she mentioned how 
she would always be complimented slash her arms would always get commented on because she had strong looking arms, which worked for her sport. But then when she was outside of that sporting context, suddenly it was something that she felt self-conscious about because she noticed how her arms were more muscular than the typical females. So this is just one interesting, I guess, difference between the male body image and the female body image and what we perceive to be ideals. And that's, again, something that I really wanted to discuss with you. So with your research sort of so far, what can you tell us about body image in men? Uh, a lot of what we know about body image in men does stem from research involving uh, in, involving women. So originally, um, you know, the early body image research investigating body image in men and body image concerns in men actually found that there wasn't really a prevalence of body dissatisfaction. But then when you look a little bit closer at how they were measuring body dissatisfaction, they were inquiring about men's desire to lose weight. And men aren't necessarily concerned with losing weight. They're just as much concerned with losing weight as they are gaining weight, specifically losing weight associated with uh, fat and gaining weight associated with a muscle definition. So following that, interviews were conducted with men to figure out really what exactly it was that they were thinking about and feeling as it pertains to their body and how they perceive themselves. And from that, various tools were developed in order for us to actually accurately capture body image concerns in men. So in terms of, you know, similarities and differences between men and women's body image and how it develops, it's influenced by similar factors. Culture and media play a massive role. Specifically, the Western culture is one that is um, very much so appearance oriented. And this culture obviously is displayed through uh, various forms of media and social media. And media tends to shows this uh, ideal, but then it also kind of shows um, it's a bit of a reflection of culture and media. So it goes back and forth. And then as individuals within the society and consumers of this type of media, we tend to perpetuate these ideals. Uh, and these are frequently coming from family members, friends, uh, peers. And if you're within the sports context, it's coming from coaches, teammates, uh, potentially fans that are yelling at you and spectators and things like that. And the media that you're a part of, you mentioned the BJJ competitor and how our arms are always a central focus within the media and within conversations there. So that's another way in which body image is, uh, is developed and impacted by in our, in our media. The differences really are the types of pressures that men and women experience. So women tend to experience pressures to achieve and uphold a thin ideal. Although there is some literature suggesting that that ideal is changing to an even more unhealthy and unrealistic ideal that is called the fit ideal. And not only is it important for you to now be extremely thin, but you need to also have some muscle definition, but not too much, you know, because there's this weird association between uh, muscles and uh, masculinity. Whereas men have uh, a different pressure. They have a pressure to uphold a muscular ideal. And this is to be, you know, tall, typically over six feet, have broad shoulders, broad back, um, predominant abdominal muscles and, and a thin waist and muscular legs as well. So if you go into a, a gym and you hear the gym bros kind of talking, uh, something that they'll frequently reference is their calf muscles. And that's becoming something that's more and more highlighted within qualitative researches, uh, not just the importance of the upper body being muscular, but of the lower body as well. So those are kind of the different ideals that we have for men and women and some of the similarities in terms of the pressures and influences of those ideals. 
And what would be the signs of a negative body image and the impacts of that? So negative body image, I like to kind of view it as being something that is appearance oriented. So you can engage in something like exercise um, and that in itself is not an indicator that you have negative body image or positive body image, but your motivations for engaging in certain behaviors or having certain thoughts about your body can, can be an indicator of negative body image. So if you're engaging in exercise to lose weight, uh, that's again, very appearance oriented, or if you're engaging in exercise to gain muscle, again, it's very appearance uh, appearance oriented and and what happens if you don't gain the amount of muscle that you set out for um, you start to feel bad but maybe that goal is unrealistic and not obtainable you might engage in certain and other behaviors uh, extreme dieting exercise dependence is a large one so an obsession and um, frequent exercise in order to obtain these uh, unrealistic ideals frequently to the point where you end up hurting yourself uh, as a result of your exercise and then continuing to exercise even though you are injured and should be resting and, and stopping. Uh, another one obviously is doping, which is huge. When you think about bodybuilders and physique competitors and especially prevalent in men uh, compared to women, although there is a still a prevalence of doping within women. So there's a lot of different things that can indicate negative body image, but I like to look at the motivations for certain behaviors. I'm glad that you've made that distinction between the motivations and the behaviors themselves, because I feel as though there's still a bit of ambivalence in the fitness industry about sort of practitioners promoting a positive body image because they feel as though, you know, well, if I tell people to accept themselves and they'll stop coming to the gym, which isn't the case at all, because as you say, it's actually just about the reasons that someone may want to participate in a certain behavior or activity in the first place. And rather than coming from a place of having to fit a certain ideal to feel worthy, it's coming from a different motivation which could be a whole range of things whether it's health whether it's the social aspect of participating in a sport and so on so I think making that distinction is super clear to help move towards a, an industry that is more sort of body positive in general now when it comes to the difference between athletes and non-athletes what do we notice in terms of body image the research on um, athletes and, and body image in sport is uh, complex and oftentimes is showing some mixed results. So with outside of that sport context, we tend to see individuals who engage in exercises uh, having um, lower levels of body dissatisfaction compared to individuals who don't engage in exercise. And a lot of people will think, oh, well, that's because they're exercising and they're more aligned with this ideal that's perpetuated in our society. And that's not the case. There was actually a study, a very interesting study by uh, Kathleen Martin Guinness that showed that even in the absence of any physical changes, individuals tend to have improvements in their body image after exercising. And this is likely due to a shift in how we maybe perceive our body. Um, maybe we just have um, more positive uh, reactions to exercise such as increased flexibility meeting immediately following about that we can feel and that we experience and that makes us feel better about ourselves we have this improved functionality appreciation and this newer perspective on our body's uh, functional capabilities so exercise is again generally speaking it's good for body image in a bubble but unfortunately what happens when we do go to gyms is we're frequently met with these messages of obtaining certain ideals and that can be detrimental to body image and that can actually 
deter a lot of people from engaging in physical activity. You know, shame is a very powerful self-conscious emotion that uh, we talk about in the body image uh, literature quite a bit, and it has the power to shape individuals' behavior um, in in various ways. And a lot of people will try to shame people into feeling bad about being overweight and thus going to the gym, but it actually tends to have the opposite effect where individuals feel ashamed of being overweight. So they want to avoid that situation where it highlights their, the fact that they are overweight. So they end up not going to the gym and not exercising um, or engaging in physical activity because they don't feel comfortable in that setting and they feel ashamed and guilty of, of various things. So it can actually, it can actually have a, a bit of a detrimental effect. Uh, so I would definitely encourage people not to try to go about that route because it doesn't work. What we want to do is we want to motivate people intrinsically to engage in certain exercises and certain behaviors. We want it to be important for them an important and an, an important part of who they are is to be, you know, healthy, to, to have a quality life, uh, to be able to move comfortably and confidently uh, within the space, within their space. Um, so exercise and body image is complex. Uh, it gets even more complex when we talk about sport. Uh, in a bubble, again, sport is supposed to be fantastic for body image. And some early research has shown that athletes tend to experience less negative body image compared to even regular exercisers. Uh, and they classify them as non-athletes. Um, but a systematic review in 2014 actually showed that high level athletes experience greater levels of negative body image compared to lower level athletes. So there potentially is an issue with competition level and how competition level then impacts sports. Again, sports similar to exercise has this potential to shift your focus from your appearance to your body's performance and functional capabilities, which is fantastic. Uh, and that's what we should all be focusing on when we do go to the gym. We wanna feel good. We want to, again, move comfortably and confidently within our environment. But unfortunately, what might happen as a result of competition is that individuals tend might tend to equate uh, appearance or certain body types with better performances or a lower weight with a better performance. And that can be massively detrimental. Uh, the case of Mary Kane is, is a very good example of, you know, an endurance runner who was breaking records and then had a coach who continuously emphasized this need for her to lose weight. And she lost the weight and her performance ended up uh, suffering as a result of that. She suffered broken bones as a result of malnutrition, trying to achieve this ridiculous weight that her coach set out for her, for her with uh, no real kind of evidence backing her need to meet this weight. And you can see it even in, in non-endurance type sports where there's, um, we're conducting interviews right now with professional women athletes. And one of our athletes mentioned as a hockey player, having to go to fat camp. And she's like, well, I'm, I'm diabetic. I, like I can't really control my diet to the same extent, you know, and I, I can't really lose weight every time I, I engage in exercise, I'm potentially putting my life at risk, but there was still this pressure for her to lose weight because there was this thought that it would increase performance. And again, that's not the case. And when we talk about competitive sports, we tend to have more and more of these pressures and thoughts associating performance with appearance and performance with weight loss. And it's really in recreational sports where we don't really see that too much because it's all about having fun. It's more mastery oriented types of environment that are about giving maximum effort. And as long as you're giving maximum effort and enjoying yourself, then it's considered a success. And people tend to enjoy those environments more than these kind of ego oriented environments where we are constantly comparing our performance and our, ourselves with other people. So 
the two are very good in that they can shift our um, orientations from appearance to health in a, a bubble. But in reality, unfortunately, they tend to work in somewhat different ways where that shift is occurring, but it's also being fought in, counter, um, in a counterintuitive way as a result of like the individuals within that space and the media that we might maybe be subject to being within those environments. You mentioned the impact of competition level on mm -hmm. body image um, in these athletes. Is there a difference? Do we see a difference between different types of sport as well? Yeah, absolutely. There's There are some issues with how we've classified sports in, in the past and e even issues in how we classify sport types currently within the body image field. Uh, that early study that I mentioned that um, compared athletes with non-athletes, classified athletes in terms of endurance athletes, ball sport athletes, and I, there was another one that, that I forget, but it wasn't really the greatest classification, but it was based off of what athletes they had and what groups they could make. More recently, we've kind of shifted to classifying athletes as either participating in non-appearance focused sports, so sports where the, the body is not highlighted, doesn't play a role in the score or outcome of the match. And then there's appearance focused sports like gymnastics or dance. Dance is another kind of appearance focused sports, cheerleading, where your appearance does play a role in the score that you get. Figure skating is a good one as well. Then we also look at the final kind of category that we have is uh, weight dependent sports. And this, these are sports where there's a weight class there. You have to cut weight in order to compete. So rowing has weight classes, unless you're in an open weight division. Wrestling is one of the main ones that we kind of look at. Boxing is another one. And we do tend to see differences between these types of sports. Typically, individuals who are engaging in appearance-focused sports do tend to experience higher levels of negative body image compared to those in non-appearance-focused sports. And weight-dependent sports are, are a little weird. Wrestlers tend to respond differently compared to other, um, other athletes that fall under this category. So again, this classification is not perfect. So wrestlers tend to, ex to, tend to experience higher levels of negative body image compared to other uh, weight-dependent sport athletes and tend to engage in various uh, behaviors that are symptomatic for and put them at risk of developing an eating disorder compared to other sports, weight dependent sports. Additionally, too, when we look at this type of classification, there might be a sport like volleyball, women's volleyball, where they technically fall under this bracket of being non-appearance focused. But when you look at the sport uniform, you can see that it's something that's very revealing, that um, it's frequently within a lot of the research is highlighted as being um, potentially objectifying and very distracting for the athletes. So there's still these issues about classification, but generally speaking, non-appearance focused sport athletes tend to have greater levels of body satisfaction compared to, and more positive body image compared to these other cate categories of sports. This is interesting because kind of what we're getting at here is where the importance is placed. You know, are we focusing more on actual metrics of performance or are we focusing on appearance and equating it with performance? And you touched on the impact that coaches can have on their athletes' own body image through sort of their messaging and what they're encouraging their athletes to do. And you also touched on shame. And I think this is something that would be great to discuss further. So I actually came across a paper that made a case for shame to be 
classified as an effective determinant of health because of the impact that it has it's not just sort of an emotion that we feel but it also has implications in terms of someone's as you as you mentioned intentions to engage in health encouraging behaviors or their readiness to join a gym for example and this is what I would love to get across from the perspective of, you know, someone who works in the fitness industry is that, as you mentioned, shame is not an effective motivator to help people, to encourage people, right? It just actually turns them away. And if caring about someone's health and well-being is not an incentive enough to learn a little bit more about body image and how you can promote a positive body image, the fact is that when your culture encourages other people to join in from a business perspective that's probably going to be beneficial because you're likely to actually attract more clients who would otherwise be put off because they experience shame so could we discuss a little bit about your research looking into the psychobiological responses to experiences of shame like what that does to the body and what sort of causes that what the proposed sort of mechanisms are yeah absolutely so shame uh, again is a type of self-conscious emotion it's a complex emotion so rather than a, a very simple emotion or an innate emotion that you know we tend to um have and, and are able to express at very early stages of our you know life uh like happiness and, and sadness babies can show this but they don't show this ability of um self-representation or uh, and that's something that develops a little bit later uh, in life where we develop this kind of idea of who we are within our mind and how other people see us um, and shame again is like I mentioned a self-conscious emotion so it's typically comes about as a result of this discrepancy between how we envision ourselves within our mind and who we actually are so if there's this perceived discrepancy we might feel these self-conscious emotions we might feel guilty about not engaging in certain behaviors that move us more towards this ideal self that we have in our mind. Uh, we might feel uh, embarrassed or ashamed because we're not that person. Um, and the potential, the uh, as I mentioned previously, the psychological impacts is that we tend to avoid situations where we anticipate shame as potentially occurring. And that's a very interesting field of research that's starting to be uh, explored more is this idea of anticipated shame as opposed to actual experienced shame. So in terms of its uh, impact on physiology, when we experience shame uniquely, as opposed to other self-conscious emotions, we tend to see this fight or flight response system activate. And people have probably heard of this. It's the hypothalamus pituitary adrenal axis gland that increases our body's cortisol and provides us with energy to either fight off a threat or to engage in certain behaviors that allow us to flee from that threat and to protect ourselves. We tend to think about this within the context of our physical self. So if we see a bear in the woods or a wolf or something like that, and it comes and attacks us, we have this activation of the system. It's a relatively fast response because obviously we need the energy immediately and we can either fight the bear, which obviously don't do, um, or we can flee from the situation, but it works as well within social context. So the social self-preservation theory basically says that you know we're social creatures us humans and we have this social identity this social being the social self if you will that we kind of project into society and it's all the things that we think are important for us to 
be these ideals that we want to uh, obtain. And if something happens that threatens that self and that uh, social identity and how other individuals within our social networks view us, we experience the same um, psychophysiological response of shame and then cortisol. So that was a lot of the social self-preservation theory research and what our lab has kind of done or my previous lab that I was a part of is we took that and we said, well, you know, a lot of people's body image and their physique is something that is very important to them. We tend to internalize certain ideals as a result of the, you know, media and culture that we're a part of and various pressures from these social agents that I mentioned previously. Uh, so what happens if our physique is kind of challenged within this social setting? Theoretically, we could see these same changes. So we first started uh, a series of studies that just looked at, you know, anticipatory responses to various situations where our body might be exposed or where our physique might be kind of known to others and we might experience feelings of shame. And with the anticipated studies, we were able to see very consistent responses. People tend to feel ashamed of themselves even prior to any actual exposure to these threatening situations. So again, if we think about an individual who is self-conscious about their body and thinks about going to a gym, they might view that as being a situation where their body might be exposed, where they might be judged by others, and they will experience these feelings of shame even prior to stepping into a gym. And that might deter them from ever stepping into a gym or engaging in exercise within that setting. What we've seen less consistently with these anticipatory responses is physiological changes that are fundamentally tied with the theory. But we obviously took this a step further and we actually introduced participants to various situations. We call them body image uh, threats. So in women, it was some of the earlier studies were talking about um, exercising within a public space while wearing uh, tight fitting clothing or simply wearing tight fitting clothing and having your body composition measures assessed while in a room for, full of uh, individuals, full, I mean like four people. And we were able to see much more consistent responses in the physiology when we actually introduced a threat. Obviously, like most body image research that focused on women and some of the later research has started to focus on men. First, it was, uh, I believe it was LaMarche in 2018 or 17, conducted a study in men and found that men respond to uh, these body image stressors and body image threats uh, psychologically and, physi and physiologically similar to women. And then it was followed up by Smith et al. in um, 2020, and he was able to show that exercise level didn't seem to play much of an, an important role, and weightlifting behaviors as well. He was also able to show that there's various behaviors that are associated with feeling ashamed of yourself. And then my research uh, looked specifically at athletes, because again, we talk about athletes being more focused on their the functional capabilities of their bodies as opposed to their appearance. So that might serve as a protective factor against some of these body threat situations. And we found actually that there wasn't any difference between them and these non-athletes and that they showed psychological and and physiological responses at a similar level to non-exercisers. So it appears to be threatening to everyone, <laughs> these types of situations. And we didn't really do anything that was overly um, overly threatening or bad. We took skinfold assessments, which are very common in athletics and um, in the fitness industry. We tend to want to measure our clients or our um, athletes' body composition levels. Uh, we also took circumference measurements of their flexed bicep, their chest, and their weight, waist while they were shirtless. And it was, again, just in front of two or three other people. It wasn't a 
massive audience that was there watching all of this. And we were still able to see these responses. So that's generally the kind of the field and, and what it's shown uh, thus far in, in my research specifically. It's really interesting how there doesn't actually have to be a threat present and that just anticipating the threat and I'm guessing at the core of all of these threats is like the fear of being judged by others right when that would be something that ties all of these threats in common when we anticipate that we might be judged by others on the basis of our appearance and that judgment would be negatively valenced we anticipate that we will not be accepted or something along those lines, which causes effects, not just in how we feel, but also like actual effects inside the body. And then that may determine our behavior as well. And as you mentioned, it's usually some form of avoidance because we don't want to face a situation where we may be judged. You've given a few examples of the scenarios that you've tested in research. What else might be considered a social evaluative threat in sort of real world in terms of our body image? So one example was going to the gym, seeing the gym as a threatening place. Um, but what else may people find threatening? So uh, these paradigms that we um, had within these studies uh, stem from earlier research that uh, inquired about what, is, what might be a threatening situation for uh, women and, and men? They're, these were separate studies. And generally speaking, any situation where the body is, is on display. So, you know, if w women highlight frequently um, trying on swimsuits uh, at the mall as being a potentially threatening situation or uh, going to pool party during the summer might be considered a threatening situation. Really, any place where the body has the potential to be seen and compared to others uh, within these social settings can be considered a threatening situation, depending on the individual, and has that potential for psychophysiological responses, which is very concerning because a lot of these things happen, you know, maybe on a, on a daily basis. Additionally, of course, I, I did mention the need for this kind of social component to really be present in the physiological responses, but we can experience the psychological responses by ourselves. For self-objectification research shows that individuals who try on a swimsuit can experience feelings of shame. We might experience feelings of shame when we get undressed and go to the shower and catch a glimpse of ourselves in you know, the mirror or when we're trying on various clothes in the morning. So these feelings of shame can occur quite frequently. And again, we've shown inconsistent responses, but still we have shown responses just in the anticipation of shame. So it is very possible that while the social component does help show a more consistent physiological response, it is possible that excessive feelings of shame also have the potential to, uh, in the absence of this social situation, has the potential to uh, cause these physiological responses. And a study that I did do, uh, it was an independent study in my master's that unfortunately COVID hit and we weren't able to analyze the data, but it looked at the um, absence of the social evaluative threat and looked at increasing or providing women with an opportunity where they are likely to self-objectify. And we measured their, um, the goal was to measure their salivary uh, cortisol levels to measure the physiological responses. But we were able to show uh, feelings of shame and Again, that data can be analyzed. It does still exist. And hopefully with uh, COVID ending soon, we'll be able to analyze it. But that's also a Im important distinction is like these types of threats can occur very frequently in our lives. And unfortunately, the, the gym just happens to be a very prevalent um, setting where these types of things tend to occur. 
And what do we know about factors that may buffer that response to these threats? Well, within non-body uh, image threats, we hypothesized that it was that physical activity level and potentially support engagement would help to, uh, to buffer that. So some studies have shown that individuals who engage in higher levels of physical activity tend to have lower psychophysiological responses to psychosocial stressors. But this was done in a different type of task. It was a speech task where they would get up in front of a room of, you know, a couple panelists and give a five minute speech on something uh, that they were told to prepare a speech for prior to. And then, so we're able to see lower heart rate and lower uh, cortisol within these situations. Unfortunately, again, within the body image realm, we didn't really see any buffers there in terms of physical activity level or sports participation, which is concerning. But some of the general factors that impact body image could be shown to be buffers. Uh, men tend to experience less negative body image compared to women and tend to face less pressures compared to women. So it's likely that if there were a comparative study that compared men and women's responses, we would see that women respond more, uh, potentially physiologically as well as um, psychologically. And the reason I say potentially physiologically is because when cortisol is secreted, it has a bit of a ceiling or a bit of a roof where it kind of hits and then it just stays at that level. It doesn't really go much higher than that. So I don't, th I don't believe that our levels that we're seeing of cortisol are reaching that roof by any means, but uh, at some point it, you know, you won't be able to see differences because these individuals are going to be at very high levels of stress already. But, you know, gender is an important one. Another one is individuals who are more overweight tend to feel greater levels of stigma within our society. So they may experience greater responses as well. Another one is, is age is an important predictor of body image. So we tend to see uh, negative body image start to develop in adolescence when our bodies are undergoing these various changes. Uh, specifically for women, the adolescence and puberty tends to move them away from the ideal, whereas men and uh, boys who are hitting puberty tend to become more muscular and that helps them to become more aligned with their ideal. After a certain amount of time, however, you know, work-life balance becomes a bit more difficult and individuals may become much more sedentary for men. And as a result, they tend to maybe become more out of shape. Uh, maybe their bodies are feeling some negative side effects of sitting at a desk all day and, and doing work such as tight hamstrings, and they may develop more negative body image, you know, in their later twenties and in mid adulthood. So they can kind of fight off this negative body image, but eventually it does end up increasing for them. Whereas women tend to experience greater pressures and at a younger age, it peaks around young adulthood. And that luckily that tends to uh, plateau. And some studies have even suggested that it decreases in, in older age. And that may be due to a shift from appearance orientation to body functionality. So that's an, uh, another factor that could impact individuals responses or potential decreases in, in responses or, or lower levels of responses to these types of stressors. Yeah, we, we've spoken a lot about sort of a negative body image and the impact that that may have. And we've also discussed sort of societal pressures as to why we face these threats so regularly and why we may develop a negative body image in the first place. Now, I wonder if we could speak to the internal work of shifting from a negative body image to actually focusing on developing a positive body image. What might that look like for someone if we could define what a positive body image is and then potentially some steps as to how we could go about achieving that? 
Mm. Well, positive body image, it's being, it's conceptualized as, you know, being comfortable in your, your own skin, having a greater perception of what is considered beautiful and acceptable bodies within society. It's a focus on what your body can do as opposed to how it looks and really just being appreciative of your body and again, uh, comfortable. So self-compassion work is, is great for helping individuals to shift their focus. Intuitive eating helps with adjusting certain disordered eating habits that might occur when individuals are very appearance focused and are wanting to make a bit of a shift. Media literacy is something that has been talked about a lot as being needed to be implemented within uh, younger populations, preferably within uh, school, teaching kids how to look at the various media that they consume and to think critically about it and to understand that it's likely uh, modified in, in a way that you know, perpetuates these ideals and that these ideals are, again, unrealistic and in many cases impossible or extremely dangerous for individuals to obtain. So that's an important one. This media literacy is would be fantastic. I think another one is when individuals do engage in physical activity and sports is how individuals are communicating about these activities and how the participant is thinking about their body within this situation. So having a coach who is like, oh, let's, you know, get get that nice, uh, those nice sculpted abs, that makes them more appearance focused. Whereas having a an instructor or a coach who is emphasizing, you know, like feel your heart rate, like feel what your body is, how hard your body is working, that effort is fantastic, that's great, is an important shift. But it does take a lot of time because again, we're trained from a very young age to be appearance focused. And it's not an easy shift. It's a lot of kind of cognitive behavioral therapy type of you know, activities that you have to engage in. It's constantly being aware of the types of messages that are coming and being uh, thrown at you and thinking critically and rejecting those and thinking about the automatic thoughts that occur within ourselves and challenging some of those very appearance focused uh, thoughts that might occur. So it's a long process, uh, unfortunately, again, because we are trained at such a young age to think a certain way, but it is definitely something that is worthwhile to do. Uh, again, it's just going to help you to feel better, to be more in tune with your body, uh, to likely engage in, in greater levels of physical activity and to have over a long period of time, a greater quality of life and to, you know, resist non-communicable diseases that, you know, are you know being resisted through various forms of physical activity and sport something that i do struggle with as a coach who helps people you know with their health seeking behaviors and also working on body image at the same time is as you mentioned there is so much value in challenging that internal dialogue and challenging your appearance assumptions and reframing some of your thoughts and then living in accordance with those revised beliefs but what i do notice is of course for some individuals we've, we've spoken about social evaluative threats right and perceived threats but sometimes those threats are very real and what i'm getting at here is like weight stigma and the fact that some people do experience different circumstances based on their appearance people do treat people in real life people do treat people differently based on how they look absolutely whilst it's worthwhile 100% and again this is something that I advocate and is a large part of the work that I do with people working on your your body image is super important and will have a number of different benefits but what do we do when we have to still acknowledge that there are actually real life external factors that may 
have an impact on how someone is treated in society. This is just something that I find difficult to reconcile. It doesn't take away from the value of doing the work and maybe even adds to its importance. But then what about that? Yeah, I mean, these things are, are very much so embedded within our culture. And um, as much as I, I advocate for the need for us to understand more about body image and, and again, understand the potential negative impact of, of certain messages that we receive, it's I, I'm also pessimistic in thinking that I don't know if it'll change, at least maybe in my lifetime, but we do see small shifts you know, various movements and various organizations that are helping to combat certain stigma. You know, I know Health at Every Size kind of gets some harp uh, about, you know, encouraging obesity, which again is ridiculous. That's not what their message is. Uh, but their message is like, I, when I go into a doctor's office and I talk about my health concern, the first thing that they shouldn't do is suggest that I lose weight because it might be underlying factors that are you know, that are very serious and, and very detrimental to my health. And all you see is my weight. And all you see is the potential relationship between various health consequences and non-communicable diseases and, and weight. And you think that I need to lose weight. Well, that can unfortunately cause a ton of issues in individuals long-term if it, again, it is an underlying health issue. So we're starting to see various organizations that combat this type of weight stigma that we see within our society. Again, it's going to take probably a long time before individuals have reshaped how we, you know, these automatic thoughts that occur, we can combat them just within ourselves and, you know, by not engaging in, you know, fat talk with our parents or with our clients or with our friends, that type of conversation isn't necessarily helpful. And eventually through these small shifts in our thinking, we can hopefully create a larger shift in, uh, in various aspects of our culture and in our society. It, it is true that, and it, that weight stigma and appearance types um, privileges kind of do exist and, and that is unfortunate. So I'm not quite sure exactly how to combat, um, you know, the automatic thinking that individuals have and the automatic associations that people have that associate various bodies with health, you know, um, again, media literacy, I think would be a great approach to help combat, allow kids, provide them with the tools to combat this type of imaging. You see somebody who's extremely shredded and you automatically think that they're healthier than another individual who is less shredded. But that's not always the case. And actually it can be the opposite because that person could be using steroids or they could be engaging in very extreme dieting behaviors that have caused them to look like this, but their body is quite literally starving and is malnourished. And luckily there's a lot of celebrities that are kind of speaking out about this. Uh, Channing Tatum, I believe has mentioned, he doesn't want to do another Magic Mike video because it's uh, it's just so extreme. The dieting that they have to engage in and the workouts that they have to engage in in order to meet this body type for that film. And he also mentioned that he feels a little bit bad about you know perpetuating this ideal that he himself does not agree with. and you know, this, this messaging that he's showing to, to young boys, he doesn't agree with it, but he's, you know, making this movie. So there's this kind of issue that is occurring. And, and thankfully, some people are speaking out, some men are, are speaking out about this issue as it pertains to the muscular ideal and pressures to obtain that. But I think it's going to be a long time before we see a culture shift, but we can do it every day just within ourselves, within the people that we interact with. And we can take the opportunity to speak out with various individuals about the issues that kind of a company having this type of ideology.
Absolutely. And it's great to see that there are celebrities speaking to these issues now and, and voicing their own opinions. And something that does give me a little bit of hope is the research on how, you know, someone with a positive body image may be more likely to promote a positive body image. So I see that there may be sort of a ripple effect occurring from like a bottom up whilst we address some of the more like structural sort of societal issues. And I am a strong sort of advocate for the idea that the relationship that you have with yourself is the foundation of all of your relationships. So again, the way that you view yourself is going to have an impact on the way that you view other people. So when you begin begin to value your appearance less, I would hypothesize that you're then less likely to compliment someone on their appearance because it's probably not the first thing that comes to your mind. And in that way, I would imagine that working on yourself as an individual first is a great way to move towards a more body positive sort of society as a whole. So that is something that gives me a bit of hope because sometimes I do have the same sort of pessimism as you experience as well, thinking, God, you know, I'm advocating for this for an individual level, but knowing that there is a lot lot of work to do um, in terms of like our society and our culture. But it's been really great to be able to have you discuss your work and um, what are you working on next? What else are you sort of interested in figuring out? Um, honestly, anything related to body image, I'm, I'm always interested in. Um, currently, I'm in the process of working with some amazing colleagues on a metasynthesis of uh, body image and sport research. So really taking all the qualitative studies and uh, examining and re-examining them and trying to come up with the uh, various themes that are um, found there. Also in the process of obviously my dissertation work, which will be the development of a body image program for coaches, uh, athletic coaches. Um, and we've had the fantastic opportunity to partner in a, with a, in a mutually beneficial way with uh, the Coaches Association of Canada. So hopefully uh, in the near future, we'll be able to develop a program that is very foundational uh, in terms of educating coaches on what body image actually is and how it negatively impacts performance and some of the myths that maybe they have been taught either by society or through conversations with other coaches because again we do tend to perpetuate these ideals in conversations with our peers so that's uh hopefully you know will be something that causes is maybe a bit of a catalyst and um you know pushing for more uh, informal types of learning for coaches and i truly believe that when you understand what body image is and how various conversations occur within society, you start to see these conversations everywhere. And even in individuals who want to be advocates for positive body image might still compliment somebody on their appearance. Uh, my nephew, for example, he, we were randomly, we were just sitting down for dinner uh, when I was visiting them and he just randomly was like, David, look at my arms and flexed in front of me. And I was like, I was like, look at those pipes. So I tried not to say like nice pipes or big arms or, or anything like that. I just said, look at those pipes. And, but still like that might be encouraging and he might interpret that as being an appearance oriented compliment. So you'll see how prevalent it is the more you educate yourself on this topic. And once you truly understand it, you'll realize ways in which you can create minor shifts that help individuals to have a greater level of self-compassion and appreciation for their body and in that minor way, we can make these smaller shifts that hopefully have a, a major ripple effect. Um, I don't know if we can do things top down within our society, but we can definitely do them bottom up, working at the individual level with everyone that we interact with and being advocates ourselves. 
Absolutely. And I think that's such a, a strong motivator to think that, you know, the work that you do on yourself doesn't just affect you, it actually affects people that are closest to you and their circles and their circles and their circles and so on. Um, if somebody wants to find out more about your work, where would be a good place to keep up to date with you? Um, individuals can probably, you know, obviously find me on Twitter. Um, I, I post any updates about studies, uh, look for participant recruitments and stuff like that on Twitter. I believe it's brown underscore David 19. Uh, they can always contact me uh, via my uh, email if they're interested in some of the work that uh, I've been doing that maybe isn't published yet or that might be more difficult to find so that, you know, just David michael.brown at mail.utoronto.ca and um, they can always go to the kinesiology and physical education faculty page look for my supervisor dr Catherine savison and uh there's various profiles under the health behavior and emotions lab uh, of all of us uh, who are doing really fantastic work in various aspects of exercise and, uh, and sport and body image. So they can find more information there uh, for sure. Awesome. I'll leave all of the details um, in the description. And thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And uh, I look forward to having more conversations about this very important topic in the future. Absolutely. I hope you enjoyed that episode. If you did, feel free to share on Instagram and tag me at shannonbeer underscore. Check out the show notes to learn more about today's guest. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.